animal head collection. Three, like whoever spent $3 million on dead animals is a very interesting person. Um, anyways, so $3 million animal head collection that's like lined, and not even just heads, it's like entire bodies of some animals, like baboons and like little like coyote looking things. And there's, I'm pretty sure, there's definitely animals hanging on that wall that are endangered. And I would even argue that some of them are extinct. Like there's a, rhin a rhinoceros head. I'm not even lying on the wall at this like mess hall that I'm pretty sure is an extinct rhinoceros, which is just so bizarre. Um, and uh, you sit there at like lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, and these things just like stare at you. And they're not alive, but let me tell you, they I mean, they look alive. Like there is a baboon that like literally is, looks like he's about to throw something all the time. And uh, it, you like look up and I'm pretty sure every once in a while you'll see one of those things blink. They're pretty freaky. This has nothing to do with the message, but I thought I brought this up. So I'm going to keep talking about it and I have the microphone. So here we are. Um, one time when I was at camp at uh, here, we, they, they'd always warn you like, hey, no pranks at camp, right? It's like you're in high school, like no pranks at camp. And all you want to do for for some reason at camp is a prank. Like, that's just like all you live for. Um, so they're like, if you do a prank, we will kick you out of camp. So everybody would wait till the last night of camp to do a prank because it's like, they can't kick us out now. We're going home tomorrow. Um, so our prank was we toilet papered the mess hall. Um, we got, they had like the giant industrial size rolls of toilet paper and we toilet papered and it was perfect because the toilet paper would just wrap around all of these animal heads perfectly. And we covered the place in toilet paper. Well, the next morning we woke up and we breakfast was at like 7.30 in the morning and we got there and somebody pranked us back by cleaning it all up. We literally walked into the mess hall thinking like you're going to be a, like we are going to be legends for like pulling off the greatest prank of all time. And we got there and there was not even one piece of toilet paper left. And we literally went to like the head of the camp and we're like, hey, just so you know, that was us that did that, like we just need somebody to acknowledge the fact. Like we thought people would be like, who did this? And they cleaned it up, not a word was said. It was crazy. Anyways, these animal heads, the reason I bring them up is because they look alive, but they're dead, right? They, they look real, well they are real, they just are no longer alive, but they, they're there and they're looking at you and the lion's mouth is still open and it's intense, but they have no threat, they're dead. They're somebody in the like late 70s or early 80s, you know, hung them on this wall and here they stay forever. And uh, sometimes the reason I'm bringing this up is because that's basically what's being addressed here in the church to, of Sardis. Hey, you're alive, but you're dead. You, you look like you're alive. You have all the characteristics of life. You have the eyes and the mouth and, and you have all of this looking like you're interesting. But the reality is, is you're dead. And so Jesus writes to the church of Sardis to tell them that even though they're alive from his vantage point, they are dead. And the problem, and this is a problem with many churches and Christians today, that we go through sort of the Christian's mo Christian motions, but there's no life, or we're appearing as if we care about the things of God, but we actually don't. Now we have a word for this, we call it hypocrisy. And and. It's unfortunate, but this is one of the primary causes for people to leave churches or Jesus altogether, right? How often have you heard it said, like, man, that church is just filled with hypocrites? And can I say, it's not just people that hypocrisy really bothers, but it also really bothers God. 
God is not into hypocrisy. No, before we start looking down our nose about hypocrisy, we need to understand what hypocrisy is. Now, hypocrisy is not trying and failing, okay? Hypocrisy is not trying and failing. A church filled with hypocrites of people that are trying to walk with God and just mess up, that's not hypocrisy. That's called being a person, right? Trying and failing is part of being a human, and especially as followers of Jesus, we find ourselves all the time not measuring up or not meeting the mark that we would like to meet or that God has set for us, right? All the time, like you read God's word and you're like, yep, I failed there. Yep, I messed up there. Yep, I'm not quite there yet. And that is part of being a person. Hypocrisy is not trying and failing. Hypocrisy is looking like you're trying and not actually trying. Hypocrisy is to have the appearance like you have it all together. Hypocrisy is looking like I'm actually doing all the right things, but in reality, I'm not doing those things right at all. And hypocrisy is something that is not uh, uh, Jesus. It doesn't get Jesus excited, right? One of the big things he would always combat when he was uh, in his earthly ministry was the Pharisees, because the Pharisees were what he would call hypocrites, they were looking like they had it all together, but in reality, they didn't. And so Jesus is addressing this church that they are alive, but they're dead. They're going through the motions. There's no real life or real depth to them. Now, before we get too far into this idea, let's sort of follow the pattern of the letter like we've been seeing throughout the series. So first, let's talk about the destination. So Jesus writes to the church of Sardis. Now, this was an ancient city in Turkey or Asia Minor, as it was called in that time. And it was a Gentile city known for its wealth and its convenience. Um, the, the first coinage ever to be minted happened here in Sardis, and this would have been the beginning of money in the modern sense. So it was a big sort of hub for money. It was at one point a very, very powerful city with important trade routes um, with a very strategic military geography. Now, about 500 years prior to the time of Jesus writing this letter to the church of Sardis, um, this uh, uh, church, or the city had been defeated a couple of times and was no longer the powerhouse that it once was. So it was once known for money and wealth and power and uh, military strategy, all of these things. It's now since been defeated, and it now had a reputation of apathy and immorality. So you fast forward 500 years closer to the time of when this letter would have been written, and now this city is known for apathy and immorality. But in the midst of this city, a work of God happened, right? For somehow, the gospel got to this area, and a church has started. And we got to assume that at one point, this was probably a healthy church. At one point, this was a good church. Like, God was doing a work there. People were getting saved. God was transforming lives. But now, the church, Jesus calls it a dead church, now the church is sort of starting to adopt the personality of the city in which it was. Right? This city that was known for apathy and immorality. Now the church is sort of, sort of starting to look a bit apathetic. It's, it's alive, but it's dead. And it's not producing the things that God wants it to produce. And there's a danger for every church, and, and not just church, but individuals, right, to begin to adopt the culture in which surrounds us. 
We're, we're at one point, we're healthy, and we're striving after Jesus, and we're allowing the Word of God to refine us and surrounding ourselves with people that are encouraging us and, and pointing us to look more like Jesus. And then pretty soon, it's, e- it's easy for us to slip back into a comfort and begin to look like the culture or the community in which we live. And so this church begins to look like that. It's, it's alive, but it's dead. Now, the second thing, we follow the pattern. We look at the description of Jesus. So Jesus addresses the church, hey, church of Sardis, and then he gives a description of himself. Now notice it there in verse 1. It says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So Jesus is like, hey, guys, it's me. It's me, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what in the world does that mean? Um, A couple things. All right, so first let's talk about the seven stars. Jesus says, I'm the one that has the seven stars. This we know. How do we know? Well, Jesus tells us what that means in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus said this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Right? So Jesus says, hey, it's me, the one that has the seven stars. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Right? So the angels, it can be translated messenger or leader. So Jesus is addressing the leaders of these churches he's writing to. Okay? And Jesus says, I have them. I hold them. Like, they're mine. I, 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 I'm in control. Right? And we need to understand Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus holds the leaders in his hands, and this is the idea that Jesus is saying, hey, it's me. I'm the one that holds the seven stars. Now, the seven spirits of God, what in the world does that mean? Now, unlike the seven stars, there is not a very clear answer to this question. Jesus says, hey, um, by the way, the seven spirits of God, this is what I mean by that, like he did for the seven stars. Um, So there's only speculation. There's only ideas. There's only people that sit around and hypothesize about what this means, right? So I'm going to give you a couple of uh, sort of thoughts that people have on what it means Jesus saying that he has the seven spirits of God. Um, One is seven in the Bible is the number of completion, right? You've seen this throughout. On the seventh day, God rested after he completed everything. And there's this idea throughout scripture that seven is the number of completion or fullness. And so some people say that when Jesus says he has the seven spirits of God, what he's saying is, I have the fullness of the spirit of God in me. That when Jesus says, uh, I have the seven spirits, that I, what he's saying is, I am fully God. And this is, this is proven throughout Scripture. Jesus claimed it in his time on earth, and then the, God, or the, the New Testament writings confirm that Jesus is fully God. Scripture says things like, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, or he is the fullness of God bodily, right? So when it says, I am the one that has the seven spirits of God, he's saying, I'm completely God. One idea. Um, Another idea is this is a reference to what the Holy Spirit has anointed him to do. This could be a reference to two passages in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to nerd out for one moment, and then we'll get back to reality. Sound good? So just let me have this, okay? I came down here. Just let me nerd out for a couple minutes on Bible nerd stuff, and then we'll move on. You with me? Okay. Okay. 
This is a reference to maybe, again, this is a big maybe, Isaiah 11, which says this, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is a um, messianic prophecy. So it's a prophetic word about the Messiah or the Savior. So we know Jesus. He says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this verse, picture it like a tree, and the spirit of the Lord is the branch, and then the spirit of the Lord has anointed him to do six different things. Okay, so you've got the branch, and you've got the six limbs, if you will. And it's the Spirit of the Lord, and then the, the six branches are uh, of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and then the Spirit of the Lord as the branch, or the, the branch in the center. And so people reference, like, maybe these are the seven spirits of God. Right? So you've got the Spirit of God in the center, these six branches that come out of it, and we've got this seven spirits of God. Following? Okay, one idea. Could be. Um, another one, Isaiah chapter 61, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the openings of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So this verse in Isaiah, now this verse was actually referenced by Jesus when he began his earthly ministry. One of the first moments he goes into the synagogue, he opens up the scroll, he opens it to Isaiah chapter 61, and he reads these verses, and then he basically proclaims, this verse is talking about me. He says, I'm the one that has been anointed by the Spirit of God, and he's anointed by the Spirit of God to do seven things. It says, preach, heal, proclaim liberty, open prisons, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comfort and console. So he says, this is me. Like, I'm the Messiah that this book, the book of Isaiah is referencing and it's uh, talking about. Here I am, anointed by the Spirit of God to do these seven things. So some people suggest that the seven spirits of God is the Holy Spirit anointing him to do these seven things. The third and probably most likely, or the most secure we can say, is we don't know. We have no idea, right? Jesus said very clearly what the seven stars were. He wanted us to know that, right? Because if he didn't want us to know that, he would have left it blank. I like to say if the Bible's silent, we should probably be silent on it too. We have no clue what the seven spirits of God are. It's fun to think about. Like, I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, the branch and the six parts, like, equals seven. That's kind of cool. Or Jesus anointed. He said this in the synagogue, and this is seven anointed. That's kind of cool. But at the end of the day, if Jesus wanted us to know exactly what the seven spirits of God was, he would have told us what it was, right? And there's a lot of time. I don't think the, the, the Bible is, is pretty thorough, but there's a few passages where I wish, like, I wish you would have elaborated a little bit more on that. Can we go back to that and just like, even one extra line that's, what I mean by this is this. I'm like, got it. Let's move on now. Sometimes it's just like, all right, God, we're trusting you that you gave us what we were supposed to understand. And so we don't know. Whatever the case, here's what we can say confidently. You ready? Whatever the case is that this 
description of Jesus is connected with the Spirit of God. And the reason is because the solution to a church that is dead is a deeper work of the Spirit of God. And so Jesus opens, he says, hey, church of Sardis, it's me, Jesus, the one who holds the seven stars and the one who has the seven spirits of God. And the solution to your problem is a deeper work of the Spirit of God. And almost every description that Jesus gives to a church is directly connected to the solution to their problem. So his own description about himself in all of these uh, letters to the churches is connected with the solution to their problem. If you go to, I mentioned Smyrna a moment ago, that they were the ones that didn't get any, um, uh, there wasn't anything negative said, only positive, and it was an encouragement because they were suffering. And he says, you guys are suffering, you're dealing with a lot, but hold on, be faithful to the end, and you'll experience life with me. And Jesus' description for himself in that passage, in that letter, he says, I'm Jesus, the one who was dead and is now alive. And there's comfort for them in their suffering, knowing who's writing to them, right? He's like, hey, I'm the one that was dead, and I am now alive. Only person that can say that forever, right? Like, even Lazarus and the other ones, like, they were dead, and then they were alive, and then they were dead again. Jesus says, I'm dead, and I'm now alive, and he writes that to comfort them. And so the same is true for this church. Hey, you're, you're a church that looks alive but is dead. What you need is a deeper work the Spirit of God. Okay, so that's the, the description. Let's move on now to the problem. Now, uniquely for this church, there's nothing positive that's said. Jesus has nothing to say. He's like, all right, we just need to get to your issue. We've we got to talk about this. And he talks about the problem. Now, again, the problem's clear. The problem is they're alive, but they're dead. You have the appearance of life, But Jesus is like, what I'm seeing is actually beyond the appearance of life. And deep down, there's there's death there. There's deadness there. And we got to deal with that. They have the appearance of life, but there's nothing there. Now, there are a couple of ways that their life could be defined as alive but dead. There's a couple reasons why somebody might look alive but actually be dead spiritually. Let me suggest a couple. One is by going through the motions. Sometimes people look alive, but are dead because spiritually, they're just going through the motions. They're living, but they're not doing anything of value with their lives. It's all routine. It's all stale. It's lacking the drive or excitement that following Jesus should create. Man, can I tell you, from growing up in the church and being around it a long time, it is, it is easy to spot somebody that is alive, but dead. There's no excitement. There's no enthusiasm about the things of God. There's, there's no emotion. There's no real sense of just stirring and newness. And man, God is working and I'm in the presence of him. And it's really easy for us to take for granted what we have. Man, if anything 2020 taught us is how awesome it is to be able to gather in community. Right? Like if, if, if it taught us anything, it's like it sucks to be alone for a long time right? And there's just that desperation for like, man, we need, we need one another. And yet it's so easy for us to take for granted what God has given to us. And it's easy for us to get caught in the motions and go through sort of the 
go to church, and I check it off my list, and I read my Bible for 10 minutes a day, and I check it off my list, and I go to the grocery store, and I do this, and we miss out on the, the life that is walking with Jesus. You know, Jesus, he offers us eternal life, right, which is life after death. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. But Jesus also offers us abundant life. And abundant life, when Jesus talks about that, it's the Greek word zoe, and it means this, quote, life real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed in the portion, even in this world, of those who put their trust in Christ. It's a life real and genuine, a life active and and vigorous. That is the life that Jesus offers, not just in the life to come, but here and now. And sometimes we, we miss out on what God is doing right in front of us because as Christians, we're too sort of living with our head in the clouds, if you will, rather than allowing God to use us and work in us and transform us here and now. And one way somebody be, can be alive but dead is by simply going through the motions of following Jesus. And maybe you need the reminder of the church of Sardis this morning, and you need to be said, hey, wake up. You're alive, but you're dead. You're missing all that God wants to do in your life and through your life. Now, a second way I think somebody can be alive but dead is that they become too focused on the temporary. Too focused on the temporary. Jesus, in his warning, tells them what will happen if they don't wake up. Look at there at verse 3. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Now, that language that he uses there, coming like a thief and not knowing what hour, is often in reference to his second coming, right? Jesus would talk about how if you, you, we have to live with an anticipation or an expectation of his return because you don't know when it's going to happen, right? And, and let me just say, like, Christ is coming back. The Bible's filled with the promise that Jesus, he came once, and he's going to come again. And the follower of Jesus is to live with that expectation, that readiness, like Jesus was coming back. He warns us lest we, he finds us not doing what he would want us to be doing. So live with an expectation or an anticipation of his return. And so when he says, if you not wake up, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. The language and what he's talking about is Jesus is telling us to live with an expectation of his return and to orchestrate our lives in that anticipation. And listen, one of the ways we can be alive but dead is by living with too much of a focus on the temporary and not enough on the eternal. We can live with too much of a focus on the temporary and not enough on the eternal. Sometimes we can get caught up in either living for the here and now and not with an emphasis on the eternal. And maybe the church of Sardis, maybe the church was a really busy, happening, productive church. Like maybe the, the deadness of the church was not that there was no people in it. Because I think there, there could be a really alive church with just a handful of people, right? Like a church could be active and vigorous and, and making an impact and doing what God wants, and it could be five people, right? Like numbers is not, Jesus isn't like 
oh man, yeah, this church is dead. Like they haven't had an upgrade in 20 years. It's the same pews that they've always had and they're still singing out of the hymnal and like, man, this church needs to get, that's not what it's talking about. Because a church could be like active and busy and doing stuff. The problem is, is when a church becomes too focused on cultural issues and not focused enough on kingdom issues. What happens is we get caught up in the world around us and the things around us, and we're not living with an eternal focus. We're living too much of a temporary focus. And a church can become dead if all of a sudden it stops thinking about kingdom and gospel and the hope that's in Jesus and eternal life and all that God is doing. And we get too caught up, too focused on just right here, right now. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think a church should participate in cultural issues. I think the church should speak in love and from a biblical source on what God has to say about cultural issues. But if cultural issues become our primary focus, not eternal and kingdom focus, we, we, become, we, become a non, we become simply a nonprofit and not the church of the living God. And our calling is to be different. The church of Jesus Christ is supposed to look different, behave different, and focus on different things than the world around us. And so Jesus says, hey, you guys are alive, but you're dead because, because you're not living with an anticipation or an expectation of my return because you're comfortable focusing on cultural issues and not focused on kingdom issues. And maybe even in our own heart, we've, we've lost track or lost sight of the big picture of what God's doing when we're focusing on little picture, other things that are happening in our world. And the church in Sardis, it's alive but dead. They have appearance of life, but they aren't doing anything of eternal significance, and they're caught up in the motions of life. So Jesus says, hey, you're dead. So now, Let's move on. That is the problem. Let's talk about the promise and the solution. Jesus tells us a couple things. Let's read it again just because I think it's, you, we can see it clearly. Verse 2, he says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know what, I, what hour I'm going to come against you. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the letter to the church of Sardis concludes with some instruction on how to no longer be dead and then a promise of what happens when you live that way. So he says, hey guys, you're dead. You look alive, but you're dead. Okay, here's how we fix it. Here's what we're going to do. Here's some instruction moving forward. And if you do this, you, here's the promise on the other side. So he tells us a couple things. Number one, he says, wake up. He says, hey, wake up. Another translation says, be watchful, be ready, be aware, wake up. Really, it is to recognize where you are dead and adjust. Sometimes the best thing that can happen for us is simply an awareness that you're not living right. 
Hey, that's not cool. Hey, wake up. Hey, you're asleep. Hey, it's time to get up and move. It's time to do something. It's time to go. Now, it's interesting that Jesus speaking to dead people says, wake up. Right? Dead people are not asleep. They're dead. So either one of two things is happening. Either A, Jesus is not actually talking to the dead people, using that poetic language, not physically, but spiritually. So Jesus isn't talking to the dead people, but maybe he's talking to those few that haven't compromised that he mentions in the, in the text. He's like, there's actually a few of you guys in Sardis that, that, that have not compromised. You, you, you haven't been soiled. You haven't, you haven't died spiritually. And he's saying, hey, you guys that are alive, stay awake. <laughs> you that are awake, like, make sure you stay awake because the culture that you're in, the church that you're in, your surrounding that you're in, it's filled with people that look alive but aren't alive. And so you need to have an awareness of that so you don't fall victim in the same way that they have. And so maybe when he says, wake up, he isn't actually talking to the dead people, but he's talking to alive people, warning them, hey, don't die. <laughs> Tracking with me? But there's also, maybe he's full on talking to the dead people because there's quite a few stories in the gospels where Jesus raises people from the dead and Jesus is like, oh, they're not dead, they're asleep. And the people are like, are you crazy? They're dead. And she's like, no, no, no. There's one story where Jesus like goes up and they're like, oh, no, no, she's just asleep. And they start laughing at him. They're like, I'm sorry, we, we checked her pulse. She's dead. And she's like, okay, leave. Please leave the room. He kicks them all out. And then he says to the girl, hey, get up. She wakes up, right? And so maybe when Jesus says, wake up, because Jesus looks at things differently, he's not confound to what we're confound to. Jesus says, wake up, and he's full on talking to the dead people. And he's saying, it is time for you to get up. It is time for you to be aware of this state that you're in. So he tells them first, wake up. The second thing he tells them is to strengthen what remains. He's basically saying, hey, there are things now that you're awake, you need to strengthen. Either A, to not slip back into what you've gone into or to keep yourself from falling into that state. Man, we as followers of Jesus, we need to make sure that we are strengthening the weak areas of our life and we're continuing to reinforce the strong areas of our life so that we don't fall. There's a passage in, in I think it's the book of Peter, that says, therefore those you, who think they stand, take heed lest you fall. And the idea is, even though you're planted right now, you need to make sure that you stay planted because the people that standing and think they're good, there's a tendency to sort of let your foot off the gas a little bit, and it's easier to fall. And so he says, those of you who stand, take heed lest you fall. So he says, strengthen the things that remain. So he says, wake up, strengthen what remains. Third thing he says, remember how you received and heard. How did we receive in here? Well, it was through grace accessed by our faith. So he's basically saying, recall where you came from. Recall what God has done in your life. Recall the work that he's been doing. And then the final thing he says, hold fast and repent. Hold fast is to obey. It is to go back to the word of God and live with the obedience to his word. And then repent is to turn and cling to Jesus. Right? Repent means to do a 180. Right? You're going this direction. Repent says, 
I'm now going this direction. That's the sound repenting makes. And we're going this direction. So repent is I'm going this direction, and now I'm turning and I'm clinging to Jesus. I'm going in the direction he wants me in. So he says to repent, to hold on to Jesus, and to the promise then, he says, okay, you're dead. You're alive, but you're dead. You need to wake up. You, you need to strengthen what remains. You need, to, you need to remember where you came from. You need to hold fast. You need to repent. And then he gives a promise to those. That, and two things. He says, one, you will be clothed in white. That speaks, one, on the idea of purity. The other, on the idea of victory. He says, you will be victorious. And then the second thing he says is that their name would not be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. We're going to close with sort of this thought. And worship team, you guys can come back up here. But it's interesting, the phrasing of this, that you, your name would not be blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, if you've been around church long enough, you've probably heard the Lamb's Book of Life. If you haven't, let me give you a basic idea. And the idea is that those who place faith in Jesus, their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And those who do not place faith in Jesus, their name is written in the Book of Works, kind of idea and one day as we stand before God as judged everybody whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be welcomed into eternity with him and those who aren't will be stand and judged for what they've done here on earth okay that's kind of the idea now how much of it is poetic language versus reality I don't know if there's an actual book that's like super tall and God opens it up and scrolls through alphabetically your name oh there it is I don't know. We'll find out one day, but I'm not sure. Um, whatever the case, in our mind, most of the time, we think of people's names being written in the Lamb's Book of Life, not people's names erased from the Lamb's Book of Life. Jesus says, hey, those of you who are dead, wake up. Go back to the life that God's called you to live in. Return. Remember the grace and faith have a deeper sense of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and and if you don't if you're not walking with me if you're he says your name's going to be erased now I don't know the answer to the this question a lot of people a lot smarter than me have spent their whole life trying to understand this idea where I'm settled and what I like to think about and what a lot of people would agree on is that actually every single human being's name begins in the Lamb's Book of Life. That when you're born, or maybe even prior, God knows us way long before we were ever born, your name's written in there. And it isn't until somebody dies rejecting Jesus that their name is removed from it. And so maybe that's, maybe that's what he means. And so what, whatever the case, whatever he's talking about, is he wants us to have security in our salvation. And I think all of us want that security in our salvation. So how do we have security in our salvation? Well, we place faith in Jesus. And then we follow him. Right? Like, I had a conversation with a, a former student of mine. I'm a youth pastor at Calvary and Bureau. And a former student, I think he's in his third year of college. And I get phone calls like this all the time of students in their second or third year of college. They're like, I don't. And he called me. He's like, how do I know that I'm saved? He's like, I, I was talking to somebody and they were saying that, that you could fall away or you could lose your salvation. Like, will I lose my salvation? How do I know am I going to lose my salvation? And I said, okay, pause, time out, stop. Have you placed faith in Jesus? Yeah. Walk with him. Just leave it at that. 
Let's let God sort out whether or not like once saved, always saved, or if people get names, gets erased, or let's forget about that. Place faith in Jesus, simple. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus died and rose again, you will be saved. End of story, end of sentence, right? And live your life following God. And can I say like the, all of the dead church and all this stuff and all the things we've considered this morning, let me just summarize it with this, okay? Faith in Jesus, follow after him. Faith in Jesus, trust and obey. Faith in Jesus, do what he's asked you to do. Allow him to teach you, allow him to grow you, allow him to change you, allow him to challenge you. Faith in Jesus and walk with him. And the, 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 the church in Sardis, they seemed like they got preoccupied or distracted or caught up or lazy, whatever it was. And the challenge for us is faith in Jesus. Trust and obey. Trust in the finished work of Jesus. Obey, do what he wants you to do. So Father, we thank you for the simplicity of salvation. Lord, we thank you that it's not about us earning our way into a Lamb's book of life or figuring out a way that we can know you, but God, it's about receiving you and the finished work on the cross. And so God, we recognize that it's all about you. You've done all the work and we receive all the benefits. So God, we once again commit ourselves to you and Lord, if we're here this morning and we don't know you, God, would you stir something? Would you, would you awaken us to the reality of who you are and what you've done for us? And then, Lord, I pray that you would, we would experience as a church and as individuals a deeper work of your Spirit. Lord, that we wouldn't be a church that goes through the motions. We wouldn't be Christians that just live for today. But, God, we would encounter your presence and your reality, and it would transform our living. So God, we commit ourselves to you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Let's stand together. The worship team is going to close us in a final song.
thank you for joining us this Sunday. If you want to say, worship more. But we hope to see you at community groups. If you have any questions about community groups or anything else, there is tables outside. Talk. Just commune together. Be congregation. Have a great rest of your week. Forgive